Good morning, friends, and welcome again to McLean Presbyterian. I invite you to take out your Bible or take one from the pew rack in front of you and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. If you do have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1030. Revelation is a a wild book that can be confusing at times, but a glorious one as well. One in which God pulls back the curtain of heaven itself and and enables us to to peek inside. Enables us to get a glimpse and a view of what's actually taking place in his own throne room. And that's the description that we have here in Revelation 5. So let's give our attention to this section of God's word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb Standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, this morning, all we have is Christ, and he is all we need. So, Father, we ask that he would come meet with us now by the power of his Spirit to teach us glorious things from your word. We pray it in his perfect name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start our time together with a very churchy phrase. Okay, you ready for this? It's simply this, that theology and doxology 
are inseparably related, inseparably connected. What on earth does that mean? It means that theology, doctrine, truth, drives, fuels, ignites doxology, worship, or praise. Our worship of God is driven by the truth that we know about him. Now, that sounds sort of theological, but let's just give it a very everyday example. How would uh, Rosie, my wife, feel if I said to her, baby, I love your brown eyes and your beautiful blonde hair? Terribly. Why? She has blue eyes and dark hair. Okay? She's not going to say, thanks for trying, you know? (laughs) She's going to say, who do you think you're married to? You know? Um... The, the, the praise of her, the worship of her, has to be connected to the truth about her. Otherwise, it's no praise or worship at all. And so it is with God that our worship of him needs to be fueled by, driven by, the truth that we know about him. There was a 13th century philosopher called Bonaventure. Isn't that a sweet name? Bonaventure. James David Bonaventure, right? You're going to listen to that guy, right? Um, someone once asked Bonaventure, why is it that men don't love God? Why is it that men don't love God? And he said, men don't love God because they don't know him. Men don't love God because they don't know him. And that is how we feel about Jesus this morning. We believe that if we could just get a taste, a glimpse, a flicker of his beauty, if we could see him just for a second as he really is, it would be enough to make us love him forever. We believe that the truth about him The theology about him is so powerful that it will drive us to worship, doxology, praise. And that's why we turn to Revelation chapter 5 this morning, because it gives us a description of Jesus, helps us know him and therefore worship him. But before we get to this description, I want to see three general observations from the text. Ready to dive in? Let's look together at verse one, the first general observation, the first thing that we see in this story is God's perfect story. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now we know from chapter 6 that this scroll is a symbol of, it represents God's perfect story for human history. God's redemptive plan. How he is going to save his children who are dear to him by his own grace. How he's going to right every wrong. How he's going to wipe away every tear. How everything sad is going to become untrue. How he's going to make all things new. That's what this scroll represents. God's perfect story for human history. And I love the details of verse 1 as well. First of all, we read that he holds this story, this perfect plan for human history, in his right hand. Why? Because he writes history. And he holds it in his palm. Secondly, we read that this God who holds history in his palm is seated on his throne. Seated, why? Because he's not scurrying around trying to keep his creation in order. He is seated in absolute control, absolute authority. The third detail I love is that he has it in his hand, he's seated on the throne, and then this scroll, this perfect story is written, see what it says? Within and on the back. Now if you imagine a scroll that was rolled up, normally as you unrolled it, there would just be writing on the inside. We wouldn't be writing on the outside of the scroll. But this scroll is written on both sides. Why? Because there's no space for additions. 
There's no chapter missing in God's perfect story. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. It's God's perfect story for human history. The second general observation, though, that we see in our text is that it doesn't take long for this uh, account to turn sour. From the glory of this perfect story, we then see at the end of verse 1 that this story is sealed with seven seals. First of all, we see God's story. Then we see that God's story can't be told. And that's the symbolism of what's taking place here. His perfect plan is is sealed. It's concealed. It can't be seen. And because it can't be seen, it therefore also can't be executed. It can't be carried out. That's the symbolism here. As long as this scroll is sealed with these seals, his perfect story can't be told. History won't unfold the way that he intends. Because of this, look at verse 2. You get a strong angel. Isn't that great? Not just an angel, a strong angel. This isn't like a James or David type of angel. This angel's name is Bonaventure. Okay, (laughs) That's the kind of angel we're dealing with here. A strong angel who proclaims in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll or to break its seals? And the response is silence. The problem of our text is that no one, look at verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. God has this breathtaking plan for human history. He has a plan for how the world should unfold. A plan that would make us say, yes, that's the way it's meant to be. But no one, no person on earth, no angel in heaven, no demon in hell is able to look into this story, let alone unfold it, that it might become a reality in our lives. And so what happens? Third general observation, verse 4, John weeps. God's perfect story can't be told and so we weep verse 4 I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it John cries and he cries audibly because he's undone by the devastation of this reality that God has a plan but it won't come to pass and so he weeps now for all the symbolism of this text, the passage is actually tapping into something that we all experience. Weeping over the fact that things aren't the way they're meant to be. Our lives aren't the way they're meant to be. I mean, we see this on one hand if we just lift our eyes to the horizon and and, and see the kind of things that happen in our world. We see disease ravaging nations. We see 10 million children under five dying every single year from largely preventable diseases. We see slavery, some 30 million men and women subjected to to slavery every day of their lives. We see a kind of depth of of, of brokenness like that seen in in, in sex trafficking. Two million children today, right now, this morning, as we sit here, being abused in the commercial sex industry worldwide. You look at our world and you say, is it meant to be this way? Surely, surely this is not the way it's meant to be. And of course, you don't have to cast your eyes to the horizon. You can just look at your own life and testify the same thing. Relationships, marriage, is it meant to be this hard? 
Is it meant to be this lonely? Are our families meant to be this fractured? Should thanksgiving and the notion of a family gathering really make us sigh? Is that how things are meant to be? Is cancer meant to inflict our family? Are we meant to suffer these kinds of hardship? Things in our world are broken. That's what sin's done to them. And we're unable to fix it. And so we weep. Remember in seminary, um, we were asked by uh, an elder of the church we worshipped at, and a fairly well-known guy in that community, if we would house sit for them while they uh, went on vacation. And we agreed to do that. It seemed like a a fun thing to do. Until, uh, it it was fun basically until I stepped into their house for the very first time. Because I took three young kids, and their home was like a museum. Beautiful home. Beautiful home. Just very so. You know, and uh, I was in the living room messing around with two of the kids, and Rosie was through in the kitchen with the other kid. And uh, one of my kids bumped into the standing lamp, and I remember—I remember it wobbling. <laughs> it wobbled, and then it just crashed. And it had this glass globe on the top that just shattered everywhere. Okay, shards of glass wherever I looked. I kind of walked over and kind of picked the child up, you know, from the middle of it all, set him on the couch, and then Rosie called through from the kitchen. <laughs> Is it broken? And I was like, yes, it's broken. And then she asked the next question, can you fix it? And I was like, no, I can't fix this. The shards of glass everywhere, there's no way that I could pick them all up, let alone glue them all back together and stick them on there so that this thing would be made right again. No, this is broken and I can't fix it. And when we look at our world and when we look at our lives, we see shards everywhere. Shards everywhere. There's no way we can gather them. There's no way we can put them back together. God has a perfect story, but it's not being told. Things are not the way they're meant to be. And so we weep. And now, at this point, enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. See the description that we're given? It's the paradoxical one. Told one thing in verse 5, told another thing in verse 6. Almost hard to see how these things fit together. First of all, in verse 5, Jesus is described as a conquering lion. See it there? John is told, weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a reference back to Genesis 49 where Judah is told that the Savior will come from his tribe, his lineage, his descendants from his people will come the Savior like a lion from the tribe of Judah. And now we read that this lion is here. And what's he done? Verse 5, conquered. Conquered. He's victorious so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. It's this victorious picture of a conquering lion who's earned the right to open the scroll. Jesus is painted as victorious. But then, in verse 6, we get a second description. You see it there? First described as a conquering lion, but then described as a slain lamb. John looks and he sees, verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now this isn't the image John is expecting. He's just been told, behold, a lion. And he turns and expects to hear a roar, and instead he hears a bleat. 
He's expecting to see a conquering lion. Instead, he sees this standing lamb looking though like it has been slain. But then see what happens next. Follow along, verse 7. And he, that is the slain lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The slain lamb is able to approach the throne of God and take that perfect story of history from his palm. This weak one is able to do the work of a conqueror. This one who is marked by his, his, his weakness is able to do the work of the victor. And so in verse 9, they sing to this lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Do you see the connection between these two things? Do you see the connection between Jesus as lion and Jesus as lamb? Verse 5 has told us, Jesus is the lion, and he is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Because he conquered. He's a conquering lion. Now in verse 9 we're told, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Because he was slain. Connection being drawn for us that Jesus conquers by being slain. Jesus is victorious by dying. That's what this whole series has been about. That he wins the victory for us by defeating sin and death. How? By dying on the cross. The connection is made for us that his victory comes through weakness. Jonathan Edwards illustrates this paradoxical picture really well by by drawing a comparison with Jonah. He says, The devil had, as it were, swallowed up Christ, as the whale did Jonah, but it was deadly poison to him. He gave him a mortal wound in his own bowels. He was soon sick of his morsel and was forced to do by him as the whale did by Jonah. To this day, he is heartsick of what he then swallowed as his prey. It's a great picture. I love it. It's very vivid. It's very graphic. He's saying, in the moment of the cross, Satan thought he had won. And he devoured Christ like the whale devoured Jonah. And then a few hours passed, And he started not to feel so good. And he was forced to do with Christ what the whale did with Jonah. What is that? Throw him up. Throw him up. It's a very vivid illustration. You know, you sit down for a great meal that you're excited about. Then a couple hours later, you're like, whoa, those ribs weren't good. Right? And the thing you thought would bring you joy actually brings you defeat. And so it is with Christ. The thing you thought would mean weakness, being slain, is actually the thing that brings conquering and victory. And so you get this amazing picture of verse 6. I love this. Verse 6. Jesus is the lamb who stands. He's standing. You see it there? Standing victorious precisely because he was also, verse 6, slain on the cross. The standing slain savior. That's the description we get of Jesus. One who conquers through death. What difference does this make? Well, our passage really directs our thoughts to two things, uh, really two things that we've already mentioned. Uh, Because Christ has conquered sin, because he has been victorious through death, now God's perfect story can be told. Now God's perfect story 
can be told. Because Christ died, the children who are dear to God will be saved by him. Because Christ died, everything sad will become untrue. Because Christ died, he is making all things new. Because Christ died, all wrongs will be made right. Because he has died, God's perfect story will be told. And history will end as God designed. It seemed like our world was destined for a story of sin and brokenness and weeping. And because of the work of Christ, he has redirected history toward the happily ever after that God intends. And perhaps, most amazingly of all, God calls us to participate in the telling of that story. God calls us to be part of telling his perfect story. And you know this, right? You know your life is not about just you. Your life fits in with his larger story. God calls us to participate in his redemptive plan. I was thinking about this with our our new members class yesterday. And I was remembering, uh, when you go to Ikea and you buy a pile of flat pack furniture, and then you you bring it all home and... um, you lay all the pieces out and you've got you know, various bits of wood and then you kind of lay out little bags with all the screws and the dowels and all the rest. And it's just going to, all before you scatter it on the floor, you kind of go, and then you dive in, okay? You start working your way through this. And then there's a knock on the door and a little person comes in to help. <laughs> help that ensures it's going to take you twice as long as it would have taken you previously. And uh, I remember doing this one day, don't remember what I was making, but putting something together with the help of a child and kind of getting just, you know, just a little frustrated with that when my wife Rosie came in. And she said, how's it going? And I said, great. Okay. Looking, at, looking at the child. Okay. And she said, James, remember, I love this line, remember, it takes more love to do it this way. It takes more love to do it this way. And you know it's the same way with God, right? He doesn't need our help to tell his perfect story. God can snap his fingers. Everything sad will become untrue. Everything will be made new. There'll be Ikea furniture everywhere. (laughs) But instead he calls us to participate. He's the loving father who finds joy in inviting his children to be a part of his perfect story. A really concrete example of this, you know, this is still maybe a little amorphous, a really concrete example of this comes um, from a member of our church. New York Times wrote an article on him a couple of weeks ago, uh, Tim Zemer in our own congregation. Tim grew up uh, a missionary kid in what is now Vietnam, and after actually he returned to the States to go to college, his father was killed on the mission field during the Tet Offensive. Tim spent a career in the Navy, and then he retired Uh, to go and uh, head up World Relief, International Relief and Development Agency. After serving there, he was invited and accepted to become the um, head of the President's Malaria Initiative. And so Tim spends his days thinking about how to combat this disease that has afflicted so many across our world. Marshals the resources of our government, partners with other NGOs who have the same ends in order that we might make progress in this area. Since Tim started this work, the President's Malaria Initiative now partners with some 25 countries in Africa and Southeast Asia. Since he started in 2006, worldwide malaria deaths have gone down 40%. From, 600, from, from around a million to about 600,000. 
Jesus conquered sin, and God is now using Tim to tell his story. And Tim doesn't have anything on his wife, okay? His wife is, is even more awesome. <laughs> God has worked in their hearts and worked in their lives, and now they're participating in telling God's story of redemption. Now, that story is a great story because it's so overt, but you understand that there's no difference. There's no substantive, there's no qualitative difference between what God is calling Tim to do and what God calls us all to do, which is participate in his great story. And so whether that's in the office or in the classroom or in a field or, you know, in your home, he is calling us to participate, contribute to the flourishing of humanity that his own perfect story might be told. Calling us to play a role in his great work of redemption. And doesn't that change how you feel about the early morning alarm clock? <laughs> Getting up not just to live lives for ourselves, but to participate in the work of the Lord Christ has conquered death, and so God's perfect story can be told, and in fact is being told through us. Takes us to the second application. Because God's perfect story now is being told, we no longer weep, we worship. Look at verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I did a wedding a while ago where that verse was the call to worship, great call to worship. And um, before I came in with the groom, uh, we stand out there in this uh, stairwell out there. And in summer, it just gets unbelievably hot out there. Okay? And when I came from that stairwell, really hot, into the sanctuary, air-conditioned, uh, the change of temperature just kind of clicked and my contacts just went crazy. Okay? I, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't see a thing. Right? And I knew that this verse was the call to worship, but I couldn't read it. So I just said, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive, and then I just listed a whole ton of stuff. <laughs> okay? you know, Honor, glory, blessing, sure, sounds good, keep going. You know? Majesty, fame, might, praise, goodness, yeah, okay. Um, and it was great because no one noticed. <laughs> it's one of those things, whenever you're in this, go confidently, no one will know, right? Often wrong, never in doubt. Um, Reflecting on that, though, one of the things I really liked about it, um, one of the things I really liked about that was I couldn't have said anything that Jesus wasn't worthy of. I could have picked any word. It might not be in this verse, but it would be true. Because he is worthy of all our worship and whatever word you want to use to describe that, unpack that, develop that it is true of him. Worthy is Jesus. One preacher says that the beauty or true excellence, beauty consists in, in the right proportion of diverse qualities. Let me say that again. The right proportion of diverse qualities. So beauty is a, a complex thing when you bring different things together into a cohesive whole. So think, for example, of, of a choir. Okay? They don't all sing the same note. You have bass, you have tenor, you have alto, you have soprano. They blend all these things together and it creates something beautiful. Well, if that's true, if that's true that beauty consists in the right proportion of diverse qualities, it's nowhere more true 
than in Jesus. Why? Because we, we marvel at his glory, and all the more because it's clothed in humility. We marvel at his transcendence, and all the more because he condescends to us. We marvel at his majesty, and all the more because he's compellingly meek. We marvel at his justice, and all the more because it's tempered with such mercy. We marvel at his sovereignty, and all the more because he's so submissive to his Father. And of all the diverse qualities that make Jesus so beautiful, none is more compelling than the combination we see in verse 6. That Jesus stands. Why? Because he was slain. The standing, slain Savior. Why don't men love God more? They don't love him because they don't know him. And I wonder if you have a taste, a glimpse, a savor, a flicker of how beautiful he is this morning. Enough to make you love him. Enough to make you worship him forever. Let this truth drive us to worship. Let this doctrine drive us to praise. Let this theology drive us to doxology. That Jesus, the standing slain lion lamb, (laughs) has taken us from weeping into worship. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have a perfect story for human history. And we recognize, Lord, that we did our very best to derail it through our sin. And yet even this, Lord, you conquered. Conquered by sending your son to be victorious through his very death so that your perfect story can be told and we need no longer weep but can worship. Father, we are, we are grateful for these amazing realities and acknowledge that it is in, in Christ and in Christ alone that our hope is found. He, Lord, is our light and our strength and our song. It's in his matchless name we pray. Amen.